That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. I think the more you align with your authentic self, actually, I know the more you align with your authentic self, the more, the easier life becomes and the happier you become. Uh, because I think that the way our society is structured is to pigeonhole us um, in every aspect of our lives, including our professional lives. And when you start listening to uh, your inner self, your soul, and you go in the right direction that is for you, every door starts opening and opportunities align, and it is truly a good feeling. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is the lovely uh, Adrian Lawrence, um, who whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Adrian, how you doing? Hi, Merle. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So let me let me tell everybody a little bit about you. Um, Adrian received her law degree from Georgetown, uh, also a, a master's from USC, USC recently in communication, um, practiced as a litigator uh, up until about five years ago when um, she decided to go uh, on air as an award-winning commentator and uh, Women's Media Center Progressive Voice of of 2018. Um, Well, I should say that's what you are now. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) uh, And also, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have Adrian on the show, in addition to the fact that she is a recovering lawyer like me, um, she is current. She is, she currently has a book out, uh, which I have read, and I was fascinated and wanted to make sure that she had an opportunity to tell all y'all about about her book. So, let's. Uh, what did, what did I leave out, Adrian? Let's see. So uh, just because I do not want the what colonials to get pissed, I was actually I got my law degree from GW, George Washington University Law School. Uh, did I say Georgetown? You did, but that's OK, because they mock us because GW, the acronym GWL, and they'd say it stands for Georgetown waitlist. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally OK uh, with that. And also USC, my most recent uh, degree is specialized journalism, uh, which is uh, pretty cool. Um, yeah, because God forbid I not get as many degrees as I can. I know, because you have, I just, I skipped over, like, I think at least two degrees, right? Yeah, yeah, I just, I had a lot of time to kill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, I just love student loan providers, so you know how it goes. <laughs> Well, uh, supposedly they might get rid of all that student debt. Ha ha. Of course. Yeah. Now that I'm down to like 10 grand, you know? (laughs) Hey, every little bit counts. (laughs) Very true. So, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, So 
where shall we start? Uh, I guess I'll start by admitting uh, that the way I know you, uh, everybody knows that I am a legal recruiter and you and I first met um, when you were uh, practicing law. Uh, I think I don't think I did. I mention that you actually worked for three large law firms um, in the past, uh, and uh, we worked together uh, on one of those firms, and so that's how you and I met and um, became friends. Correct. Um, so, talk to us about. I could I could talk all day about why I'm a recovering lawyer. Talk to us <laughs> about why you're a recovering lawyer. Um, well, I loved practicing law in part because I love serving. And so being able to meet my clients' needs, it just, it felt so good. And also too, being a very regimented person, I really enjoyed rules and, and writing. And it really spoke to all of the things inside of me. The things that became problematic is that I, I don't have any limits. I'm either at zero or 100. I'm nowhere in between. So as much as people talk about work-life balance, I had no off switch. I would work on Sundays and Saturdays because I have no off switch. And it was not a way that I could, I could live my life in a whole manner. So I have to leave it entirely because I am princess all or nothing. So I decided one day I want to do something different. Okay. And, and so how did you, how did you land on, on air? Uh, commentating. <laughs> so uh, let's see, I was practicing and I knew I needed a change. So I saw a life coach and she had me do a bunch of things that really tapped into my childhood dreams, um, like coloring and coloring books and talking to your parents about what you were like as a child, all sorts of things. Mm. And I realized how much I enjoyed uh, sports. And so I also was making more time for myself outside of, you know, the firm. And so I signed up for classes at UCLA for their extension program to do one class a night. And I would literally treat it like people treat their children, where I would say to the partner, sorry, I have class night, can't stay. And I would leave. Mm -hmm. I literally was, uh, as I know the word to be now, boundaries. I was setting them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I ended up in class with a woman who needed help. Um, and she said her boyfriend is trying to be a sports host and she knew I liked sports. And so she asked me if I'd be in his reel with him. And so I went to her house one Saturday, we sat down, we filmed for his reel cause he needed someone to bounce things off of. And he sent it out and I'm just in a class, just having a good time. And then all of a sudden I get contacted by a major sports network saying, we want you. Wow. Um, that was one the of right the time, place at the right time, right? Yeah. Well, it's one of those reasons why they say never feature anyone else on your reel. <laughs> and so that man does not talk to me anymore. <laughs> he does not talk to me at all. That's so, hilarious. God bless him. That's but hilarious. Yeah. So sports, are, did, did you play a lot of sports or did you just watch a lot of sports or both? A combination of both, because uh, I, I have all brothers, but my brothers didn't like sports. Um, my dad did, and so I spent time with my dad uh, watching sports, and then I played competitive soccer for years as the keeper, uh, and I really enjoyed it. But then um, I got into working, and I started working, <laughs> and I never went back to the field. Um, but I'd always have you know sports on in the background, and it was always an integral part of my life. And I liked it in part because the law felt so intense and it's fun. Well, I found sports to be rather fun, but then I got into sports broadcast and I realized it's the exact same thing. 
So I just have to ask you this. This has nothing to do probably with anything we should be talking about. But this, you know, everybody knows we're in the time of of a pandemic and, and COVID. What do you think of these teams playing? You know, I know the basketball played in a bubble and that was pretty successful. What do you think of playing without fans? What do you think? Um, I, I think it's good to play without fans. I do have a lot of concern about the players and the players' health because we see the NFL and we just saw, I believe, with, with the Ravens and the issues that the teams are having. And the reality is, is that some, some leagues are just better situated to be able to isolate everyone and to continue to play. And some are not. And the fact that you have so many players uh, in the NFL, it's just not possible. So I think it's very dangerous and um, and foolhardy, but unfortunately, capitalism is king. And this is a reason they'll continue to play, even at the detriment of the players. Right. And it's pretty funny that, and I know that you're really all about uh, justice and civil rights. Um, it's funny that they could they could figure out how to do that, but they couldn't figure out how to kneel. Uh, or, <laughs> right. God help us. Yeah. It's so funny. It's funny the things that the, you can actually, you know, compute when you stop being, you know, racist. It's great. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know why I laughed at that. I guess the fact that you actually called it out for what it what it is, which I think is one of the things that I really appreciate you uh, about you. Um, and I think it's one of the things that makes you unique. What what do you, do you agree with that? And, and what would you see, say makes you unique? Oh, um, yeah, I definitely say my candor goes a long way. And it's interesting because I find that so many people appreciate it, especially um, in all these spaces that I enter, because I think in part they can tell I'm not trying to tear anyone down. I'm just calling it as I see it. And and it goes a long way because um, I think, unfortunately, in the society in which we live, uh, too often do we pay lip service to things or um, do we try to curry favor as opposed to let's just say what the score is. And so that's what I do. And I enjoy it. It works well. Yeah. It hasn't I mean, always worked well, but it works well. But it works out, right? It might not always work well, but I feel like it always works out. Yeah. And I think so too. I think the more you align with your authentic self, actually, I know the more you align with your authentic self, the more, the easier life becomes and the happier you become. Uh, because I think that the way our society is structured is to pigeonhole us. Um, in every aspect of our lives, including our professional lives. And when you start listening to uh, your inner self, your soul, and you go in the right direction that is for you, every door starts opening and opportunities align. And it is truly a good feeling. And this now, is somebody is this, who's been everywhere, like, because I now, truly know I've been everywhere. Yeah. And so is this, I know that you are doing some coaching. You, you, you went to a coach and that's what turned things around for you. Um, you're doing some coaching. Is that the kind of thing that you're coaching others to do? Um, so the coaching I, I do largely is in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And it helps people understand their bias and give them new tools for addressing it and stepping up. Uh, and I enjoy that considerably. I'm not going to be in that space for very much longer, but I love it. And I love the people. Uh, and it's cool for people to have that revelation and also to be able to ask these questions that they've never been able to ask. Uh, because the thing is, just telling someone, no, you can't say that, isn't enough. People need to understand how systems work and what's going on behind the curtain 
so that they can fully process because, uh, you know, it's like we're all human beings and we deserve that respect of let me explain to you how, uh, why you can't say that or why it's problematic when you do. Uh, and I love being able to give people that. So then let's just segue uh, into um, your book. How's that? Sounds good. Okay. So Adrian, um, I know that you are an author and I want everybody to run out and buy this book, not because you wrote it, but because you talk about, you at least acknowledge me in it. No, just kidding. You yeah. did acknowledge me, which I thank you for, but um, it is a wonderful book. It's called Staying in the Game, the Playbook for Beating Workplace Sexual Harassment. Um, I was a little almost um, afraid to start reading it because I thought maybe I might get triggered or because, of course, I've experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, especially when I was really young. Um, and I, it took me a while to pick it up and, and read it. And once I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. And I, I want to just have you just kind of talk to us about how the book came about and how, you know, what you wanted to accomplish with the book. Yes, most certainly. So um, I ended up having uh, the benefit of going straight from uh, essentially my master's program at USC in journalism to uh, which I was also practicing law at the same time. So essentially straight from a law firm office to an international anchor desk at ESPN. Uh, I was a legal analyst for them under a two-year program that was supposed to uh, really roll into long-term employment benefits, but I endured sexual harassment while I was there. And I was so shocked in getting and having the experiences I had while I was there because I had always been on, in this ivory tower at law firms where, uh, where I was sexually harassed like a handful of times, but the way in which it was done was very different. And it made me realize how women are treated in everyday society because, uh, again, I was in an ivory tower. And so um, I ended up fighting ESPN and becoming the first on-air personality to sue them for workplace sexual harassment and retaliation. And, um, you know, the case ended up settling. No depositions. Uh, I have no NDA. Um, Clearly. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it's one of those things, though. But, but, you know, the thing is I told them exactly what I was going to do. I laid out my game plan, all these other things. But it also made me realize that workplaces, businesses, these major companies, they're not logical creatures. They are not just about business either. They are very much here to uh, bolster uh, the power structures that are within society. So the fact that I challenged the patriarchal and the racial power structures by fighting them and demanding that I be treated as an equal, uh, that rattled them. They did not like that. And thus they held their ground until, uh, and they did a lot of unsavory things in public and had a number of people lie on my name and whatever, but I had to fight back and I did. And I realized that in the process of everything and the experiences I was going through, there were no books out there that would tell me what to do. Every book I dealt with or that I interacted with was a legal reference manual and I didn't need to know the law. I knew the law. I'm a litigator. But, uh, and then uh, everything else also, I should say, was also a memoir of someone's experiences. I don't need that. I need like the how-to, like how right. we have dating books, how we have, what, what, is, what does this world really look like when it comes to this form of bullying that they call sexual harassment? And so I went ahead and just wrote the book that I needed. Interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting that you 
that you call it bullying because that really is what it is. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the the racial uh, harassment um, that goes on in the workplace, that's what it is too. You know, when you think about um, microaggressions, right? I mean, I don't know if you want to tell our audience what a microaggression is, but that's I, I consider it bullying, just yep. another way of trying to make somebody feel less than. That's correct. That's all it is. Those everyday slights that marginalize people, whether they come in the form of words, bodily conduct, maybe crossing your arms, not giving eye contact, tone of voice. Um, it shows up everywhere and it has significant impact on um, your willingness to commit to a company. Also, your feelings of worth, having to navigate this world with the thought that you have this Im implicit slight that says you are lesser. It happens the same way in sexual harassment where unfortunately we live in a society that is very puritanical or would like to think it is. And thus anything with the word sex to it makes people very uncomfortable. And so sexual harassment has very much been almost segregated when really it's just gender-based bullying. It's because you don't want me in the space rocking hard like the rock star I am and thus you need to make me feel small. And you can do that by sexualizing me or you can do that by putting me down. Come ons or put, put downs. And that's exactly what happens in a lot of workspaces and women engage in it as well, as well as men. Yep. And when people fully understand what it is and also the ways in which you can respond to it uh, and also how the system will respond to it, it, it just uh, research has continually shown that it makes it so much easier to psychologically overcome the situation. And the thing is, is men also need to be very much in tune with sexual harassment because the reality is that it's gender-based bullying because you don't fit the traditional framework of maybe being a man or a woman that our society has created. So if you have a man who takes paternal leave, who maybe is more invested as a father, or who maybe has more effeminate qualities, uh, he is easily going to be targeted for sexual harassment and bullied into the alignment of this idea of what's traditional masculinity, which is very much toxic. Right. And, you know, I, I, I agree with that 100%. The other, the other area that I find fascinating that I think um, it happens to marginalized folks, whether, you know, whatever uh, uh, way that, that arises, is what's now called gaslighting. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially these days, like, you know, uh, in this, the, the political arena that we're in where, you know, people don't want to be called racist or don't want to consider that they might be doing something racist. I feel like, you know, a lot of times people in power, if you mention something uh, that feels racist to you, they will say, oh, well, that's not what they meant. They didn't mean to say that. Uh, I'm sure that's, you know, they, they, that wasn't their intention. And I just realized that's gaslighting, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because the thing is, it's what, what does intent matter? You know, it's like, yeah, I, I meant to drop the A-bomb over on that country and I just hit the other country. My bad. That doesn't give you a pass. The impact is that you lost lives. And so when people focus on intent, it's a way of number one, they get to center themselves as opposed to the impact, which would be exactly. on the person you broke and hurt. And so when people continually try to get these passes by focusing on intent versus impact, it's just, you're absolutely right. It becomes a form of gaslighting. 
And I think they don't really understand. I mean, even if you give people the benefit of the doubt, I don't think they understand how hurtful it is mm-hmm. for somebody to actually have the courage to have a conversation with them about something as serious and hurtful as it is. And then for them to minimalize it yes. by saying, well, I'm, it, it really was no big deal or they didn't mean that. Yeah, because you're absolutely right in terms of when I bring an issue or concern to you that you may rarely hear, you should sit down and listen because I'm doing something that no one else really does and you've probably been engaging this behavior for, for some time and so it's problematic. And the thing is, unfortunately, in our society, we have a lot of people who lack self-awareness because they've never had to have it. So fortunately, we are having a lot more of these conversations now. And with people speaking up and saying, hey, that's racist, um, it goes a long way. The thing that I find to be most redeeming is the people who understand that they are racist and they don't uh, they don't take offense to the term. Right. Uh, Because we're all sexist uh, and racist, too. It just depends on the spectrum where we are, because when you stop seeing it in the framework of being a dichotomous racist or not racist, kind of framework as opposed to a spectrum type behavior, then it goes a lot further in terms of saying, hey, how can I move more to maybe the left end of the spectrum and be more aware of my behavior and the impact that I'm causing on those around me? Right. I I like that. It's kind of like, you know, know thyself and recognize where you are on the spectrum. Yep. Everything in life is a spectrum from sexuality to gender to race to, and unfortunately we live in a very limited minded, black and white dichotomous society and it's no fun. There's so grows. <laughs> so our, our theme uh, is always authenticity. And I think we, we've talked about that. It's also about stereotypes. And I would imagine, you know, a beautiful woman, a beautiful, smart woman like you, you know, breaking into uh, the sports world, especially on-air sports, had to have come with some uh, preconceived stereotypes that you had to deal with. Can you think of any? Oh, yeah. Well, people, I was told people were afraid of me because I was a lawyer, which I thought was funny. Uh, <laughs> but when I realized how many people were out there breaking the law, I guess they should be afraid of me. <laughs> well, that's a whole different conversation. Um, yeah. But I do think that, um, you know, People automatically think, uh, unfortunately, with the racial stereotypes and the massage noir that goes on, um, you know, you have this thought that you're a Jezebel. You're sexually available at all times. Also, this thought uh, that you are sassy and let me fight you and you're loud and all these unfortunately adverse stereotypes that have been attached to black women for far too long. Um, Also, you have to realize that sports is one of the last, or I guess we could say sports reporting and sports... Uh, what sports radio is one of the last bastions of white male dominance. And so there is a lot of protection over that. And thus they don't want you there. Uh, Also too, going straight from a law firm to ESPN, a lot of those people that were on air there, actually, I would say 99.9% of them, they had worked their ways, their way up through smaller markets. Whereas I'm just like, Oh, I'm going to try something new. And then I jump to the top. So like the amount of shade I got, I every, every direct, and it's like, also you're extremely intelligent and you happen to be conventionally attractive and you're well-to-do. It's like uh well-to-do by 
by virtue of the fact that I worked at large law firms and I invested and did all the things I needed to do, but I did pay my way through all my schooling. So please do not think I have a silver spoon. Anyways, grand, but anyway. <laughs> and so part of me is like the hate that came down. It's just unfortunate. Also, we have to consider that people in broadcast, often you are judged on how you look. And when you start getting older, um, you know, it's not, it's not as easy to continue to command the screen. Uh, and that's an unfortunate aspect of things. And so uh, it's a lot of, I guess, almost superficial. And so when you also come with substance and all these other things, it's just, it's an unfortunate world in which we live in. Uh, but one thing I cannot stand and I will not stand is insecurity. And I realize that I work best in spaces where I'm not dealing with insecure people. And so now I surround myself with people who are secure or I do not engage with them. I just don't have time. So how do you, how do you pull that off? Exactly. I think that's a great question. Um, (laughs) As I mentioned earlier, in terms of when you follow your spirit and you follow the things that speak to you, I think the universe opens up to it. And so I've gotten a lot of opportunities where I get to call the shots. And if it no longer works for me, I'm out. And I have been responsive to that. Uh, we do live in a very capitalistic society where just by virtue of the fact that our health care is associated and tied to our employment and our worth is often dictated by who is our employer and our title. When you divorce yourself from that and you realize I am whole in my own and I do not need a title behind my name or a certain name on my paycheck, and you start doing what you want to do, I do find that the universe opens up to you. And for some reason, it has done that definitely for me. So I have gotten people calling me, asking me if I want to do things. And I just do them because I think they're fun. Uh, That's how I got in the DEI space. And when it no longer serves me, I leave. And, and I, and I drives my parents mad. Oh, it drives them absolutely crazy. But then another opportunity comes along. Uh, for instance, this show I have now, uh, Appealing. And oh, I'm, I talked about that. This is new. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. On the Black News Channel, I've been brought on to host Appealing, um, a nightly news show that talks about um, a lot of legal issues and largely those that impact primarily the Black community and to give voices in that area and to also give news from our perspective. And so having this person reach out to me, which is the president of the company, um, this person reached out to me in part because they saw the integrity I had in fighting ESPN. And that's the exact reason why, because they wanted host and talent who use their voice and have integrity in the process. And that was me being whole and being completely and totally honest and sincere and authentic with myself when I fought ESPN and it has continued to pay off by virtue of the fact that that resonates with people. Because when you are true to yourself, you are doing what a lot of people are too afraid to do. And there is always going to be a market for that. Yeah, I, um, I agree with that a hundred percent. I, but I, I really don't know any other way to be <laughs> other than authentic. Um, but I know that it's really, really hard for people. And I, and, you know, I applaud you for what you did. I know that, you know, especially when you talk about the Me Too movement and, and the fact that you even needed a Me Too movement um, and the fact that there are so many people who, I mean, some, for some of us, like you and me, it's, it's hard to even understand why you wouldn't say 
okay, I'm out. I'm walking away. You're not going to abuse me. Uh, but there are plenty of people who feel, who believe that they're, they have to do it for the, their career. Correct. Um, have you counseled people like that? Are you, you know, are you, uh, do you, do you address that in your book? Um, um, I, I do. Yes, because the thing is, I make sure people remember you always have a choice. And when right. you claim you don't, you're lying to somebody and you're lying to yourself, And I, but I won't let you lie to me. You always have a choice. And so if you choose to stay in that environment, okay, you chose to stay. So you can choose to navigate it the best you can if you'd like, but do not say that you're forced to stay anywhere because you do not have to stay anywhere. And so when people understand that they have a choice, that they do not have to endure that behavior or that treatment, it goes a long way because you realize you have power. And that's something that I find to be uh, very enlivening for a lot of people. When you realize the power you have, because uh, sometimes too, actually, I think the vast majority of the time, we define ourselves based on what society, what our parents, what our friends think would be admirable. But your parents, society, your friends aren't living your life and they're not you. And you only get one go at this game. So why live a life where you feel unfulfilled? You should be doing what you were put on this earth to do. And the thing is, everybody knows uh, what their true spirit is calling them to do and what talents they have to bring to this earth. And you can always fulfill them. Even, you know, because I was practicing law and also going to school and doing sports broadcasts at the same time. Like you can, anything you want, you can make happen. It's just, you know, it depends on if you want to continue to make excuses, uh, which you're welcome to do, but don't tell me I don't have time or I don't have anything because you can do anything you want to do. You, and so, and I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I don't believe in excuses. You know, I, I, I don't believe in being a victim, but I think a lot of people would think that we're harsh and mm-hmm. that we're being you're not being compassionate or empathetic. Although I think people who know me know that I'm very compassionate, Mm -hmm. but where, so, so do you feel like there's a line? Um, shucks. I don't know necessarily what you mean by that line. I don't know. I'm just unwilling to make excuses because if you want it, you go get it. And so I actually find it very strange when people reach out to me and they ask, how can I make this happen? Because part of me is like, I appreciate you asking me that. But I almost feel like to some extent it should be innate within you in terms of, okay, I see that person, because uh, I've had a number of people reach out to me to ask, how do I become a legal analyst? Okay, well, what do you see legal analysts doing? Okay, well, mic- mimic those things. So figure out how you can get experience on camera. We all have phones. So we all also have access to YouTube. So we can create a YouTube channel easily. You can open social media platforms and start um, presenting your material and you can reach out to networks. You can reach out to agents, ask people how it gets done. And, you know, people have the secrets that they can unlock, but also too, a lot of it is right in front of you and you just have to seize it. But I think a lot of people do make excuses because they're afraid. Yeah. And the thing is, that's okay. But that is not, it's not a justifiable excuse. It's not a reason. Amen, sister. Uh, so, so is there is there anything then? I mean, you've done a lot of things. Are there things that you that you want to do that you haven't gotten the nerve up to do yet? Yikes! Um, it's funny because I I just now kind of just follow my path and I let things come to me a bit. 
Uh, but I've actually already been an adjunct professor, which is fun. I always wanted to conclude my career, so to speak, in being a professor because I love to teach. I was invited to apply to a very prominent school because they had me give them a presentation to them and they loved it so much. They ended up showing it to the entire school. So um, it would be very cool to teach, but I know I have a lot more things I, I would like to do in the meantime. And I like flexibility. Um, but I also thought after ESPN, I would never uh, sit down and agree to a contract with a company. And that is clearly not the case as I'm now with ENC. <laughs> never say never. Yeah. I, I started out in, uh, after I graduated from college, I started out in um, sales and it was co commission sales. And I said I would never, once I got out of commission sales, I said I would never do commission sales again. There was no way I was ever going to do that again. Well, guess what I do? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't it interesting how that ends up working out? Right. So, so never say never. Exactly. Um, how are you managing in these stressful times or, or are you not finding it stressful? Uh, initially, I found it to be very stressful, largely because of the George Floyd protests and essentially having a lot, because uh, I grew up in an all-white community, and um, and it's, I have a, a number of white friends, and for having them finally kind of wake up to my reality and essentially being inundated with calls and messages from yep. people who love me, and they love me, and I love them very much, but I've never had conversations with them about these kind of things. And for having them to finally wake up, that was traumatic for me. I think in part because I, you know, you don't want them to see you in a different light. You want them to still love you, but at the same time, it, it does bring a little anger out, and it's a, it's a lot of different conflicting emotions. And so that uh, I found to be very traumatic. And I should also mention, like, um, you know, having because I live in a major city and I'm on a protest route. And so essentially, you know, there were helicopters and tanks rolling down the streets. And so it was a lot uh, dealing with that and having helicopters shine their light through your windows. Uh, and that's just a lot. And so I've had to, uh, I went, I ended up going home to Sacramento uh, to my dad's gated community where Uber Eats can't even get in because uh, it's like an old folks, 55 and over community. And it was great. And uh, it was a, a good time to get away. But uh, now it's, it's a lot of peace and it feels really good because we are having these conversations and, and there's a reckoning and there's change. So I don't have my parents anymore and you're a lot younger than I am. And you mentioned your dad. You've also mentioned your parents. You know, the conversations that you're having with them about what's going on right now, what's, what's that like? Uh, well, my parents are conservative Midwesterners, uh, so they don't talk about these things. And um, and so it's very, it's interesting because they're not used to also talking about these things. Uh, despite my father was the head of the Omegas, it is a fraternity. My mother's a Delta. Uh, they are very black, but they also just never talked about these things, really. And they took the approach in raising us that the world would teach us about this. So I grew up in a very sheltered way, unfortunately, and I've had to find these things out on the streets. Uh, and, you know, parents do the best they can when they raise you. Uh, so I don't hold that against them because uh, it allowed me to be, I guess, more naive for a longer period of time, uh, which was kind of nice. 
Um, and maybe that contributed to my mentality that I can do anything I want to do, uh, which I think is beneficial. But um, we don't really have the conversations. We just still don't. Um, yeah. And I think in part because they've lived them. Uh, I have had conversations with my father where I asked him why he joined the Omegas. And he said, you know, going to SIU, Southern Illinois University, when you're out in a rural area in the 70s, he's like, you don't know if you're going to run into the Klan or not. So you have to run in groups. And so I joined the Omegas and I led the Omegas. And, but you gotta, you got to run in groups. You have to have brothers because you never knew when the threat would come. And, and having my dad share that realization was like kind of eye-opening. Because again, I grew up in a house that never talked about race. They didn't talk about gender. Everybody was fair. My brothers did as much dishes as I did mowing the lawn. Like, uh, so it was only into getting out into this world and realizing how biased it is. Uh, and that wasn't the house I grew up in. So that had to really make oh, it girl, jarring as hell. More crazy for you when these things started happening to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. That and also now finding out that I'm on the autism spectrum and I actually live in a very dichotomous world where I survive on logic, which is why and it's great because I'm highly, highly autodidactic. I can teach myself anything, uh, which is which is great. But at the same time, too, it means I live by rules. And the world tells us these are what the rules are, but those aren't the rules that the world actually applies. And so uh, having that sheltered upbringing and then in addition to living off logic and thinking essentially what they told me was the truth. Oh, my God. It was like a huge jolt and shock to the system. But the cool thing about it is when you understand yourself more and you're more aligned with your vision, your dreams, the things that make you you. Uh, the world answers so much better. It's wonderful. So did you share with your parents that you're on the, on the autism spectrum? And oh, how, yeah. did, how did they respond to that? Did oh, they... it didn't go well. It didn't go I, well I at all. <laughs> and, and the thing is, it's odd too, because part of me is like, I've, I've skipped multiple grades. Like I, I have a bunch of degrees. Like I've never, you've never seen me study because I never study. Like the fact that I can sit down and take a bar exam and pass it without studying and all of these things that I'm able to do, and I can just do it with ease. And also, I'm just like, all these aspects of me, I, I, I foot the bill, mom and dad. But they don't want, of course, because unfortunately, our society is not very, in, not very nuanced. Yeah, and they assume that there's something wrong with being neurodiverse. And I'm out here like, oh, my God, are you kidding? I'm a rock star. Like, the things I can do, the, the ability to recall, uh, everything. And I also, the thing is, when you find out more about how you operate and function, it's unbelievable because then you can not, I shouldn't say weaponize, but you can truly maximize how you work and you are not a cog in the system. You are unique. And when you figure that out and you're honest and authentic about it, it feels so good. Well, that, that actually, um, my daughter, uh, uh, is, um, found out when she graduated from college that, um, she has OCD. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and anxiety and all that. And, and mm -hmm. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to think about it until, you know, it got to the point where it's like, I need to find you somebody to talk to about this. Yeah. And, you know, and she's brilliant. I mean, you know, she went to Yale. She, she's, she's brilliant. She can play, you know, music by heart. I mean, all the mm -hmm. kind of things that probably, you know, a lot of the things 
that um, are she can do because she has OCD, right? Yes, that's right. Um, and, you know, a, an amazing writer and all that stuff. But I will tell you, as a parent, it is hard to, to accept initially because, you know, you make it about you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're thinking, what did I do wrong? I was a bad parent. You know, did it happen in the womb? Did we raise her wrong? Until you come to the, the like you said, you are an individual. You are who you are. And these are the things that make you unique. Mm-hmm. And and being and just like you, she'll talk to anybody about it. She, <laughs> you know, she is open, honest. She tells her, she'll tell her employer, she'll tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what know, are you going to do to me? This is who I am. And that's beautiful. If you have an issue with it, that's a you problem. That has nothing to do with me. Exactly. And, and, you know, this is beautiful. I mean, this conversation, these are the kind of conversations, thank you so much, Adrian. These are the kind of conversations that I want to have with people because I want people to respect themselves. I want them to feel good about themselves. I want them to understand that their authenticity is what makes them great and how they're going to help, uh, you know, their environment. Uh, be great, mm-hmm. you know? Yep, and to stop hiding. Like, do you, be you. Be the best version of you that you can, but if you don't embrace who you are, you can't be that. And and again, that's also why I don't, I do not engage with insecure people because they're only going to end up hurting me because people lash out when they're afraid of, you know, you judging them or this or that as opposed to embracing and loving yourself as you are. And that's something nobody can take away from you. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. So, okay, so I'm not going to, I know you're really busy because you're doing, you know, 50, 11 things. As we like to so, um, but it, do you have a fun or, or, or a, a, lust, a story that you can share with us, share with the audience that's going to, you know, give them an example of, you know, how to be authentic? Um, but have fun mm-hmm. while doing it. Um, gosh, I, I, I really don't necessarily know what to say as much as I often ask my friends, why do you care? And I get it. Like, I still care about things. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not necessarily a sociopath. But <laughs> I like to ask people, like, okay, great. Uh, okay, so this is your issue. Awesome. We've identified the issue. So let's go through the steps of that and being honest about it. All right, great. Why do you care? And how would it make you feel if? And I also really impose upon people to um, ask questions more as opposed to making assumptions. Uh, There's a lot of vulnerability in questions. Like people are afraid to admit they don't know something because our society loves to think it's all knowing. I take an incredible, incredible amount of uh, just thrill in the, and I love saying when I don't know something because not only is it true and authentic, but also it positions me to learn something new. And even if I do know some aspect of something, I do like to hear it from different vantage points. But the opening yourself up to learn something new, to being vulnerable, to change, to criticism, how can I get better? And, and it's okay to be different. It's okay to quote unquote fail and not succeed. If you want to get better, get better. Or if it's not your speed and you're not your ministry, it's not your ministry. Um, I just think also 
investing in interpersonal growth, investing in the growth and understanding of the world around you, uh, it goes far. But until you admit and realize, hey, I don't know, or I'm insecure about this, um, then, you know, keeping up a front, it's not going to get you anywhere. So just be honest, be open and realize that that's a power move and that's a power play. Uh, be a powerful person. Own yourself. And Adrian, you are a power, power, powerful person. That just gave me goosebumps. Uh, you are a badass girl. And I appreciate your taking the time to be with us. I just want to say thank you to you for being with me uh, today, to BS with me today. Um, and once your show, what? To tell us the name of the show again. So my show name is Appealing, and it's on the Black News Channel. Um, and that will be available via your cable network provider. Also, there will be streaming capabilities, which is cool. And also, if you're looking to pick up my book, uh, which is a very easy and fun read, as Merrill can, uh, Merrill can attest, uh, it's Staying in the Game, the Playbook for Beating Workplace Sexual Harassment. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember, everybody is different and different is good. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.